The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my Populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. There are plenty of folks out there trying to inflame your passions. My purpose is different. I've come to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment, whether it's volunteering for a campaign or contributing a couple bucks or making sure that you exercise your right to vote and don't say, oh, my vote doesn't count because every vote does. Or write a letter or go to a, go to a town hall, but get involved. This is our government. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. And the numbers tell me what's out of norm, what needs attention, how to prioritize the necessary changes. And in the numbers this week, $320 billion, that's the top line increased federal government spending year over year for fiscal 2019. Just think, they're adding $320 billion to this year's budget. That will take the national debt to $22 trillion. Yep, that is a debt that doubled over the last decade. And it's rising just like a 4th of July firecracker. Up, 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 up until it explodes in a mass of little colored particles. And that's where this debt is, and our economy is going. $27 billion in Medicare and Medicaid improper payments. That's a euphemism for fraud in a lot of cases. It was documented by the Government Accountability Office for the most recent year audited, and that was 2017. Now, the good news is that's a reduction for a running rate of about $50 billion a year from 2006 when they first started looking to about 2016. So it's an improvement, but it's not a solution. 
And I think before you talk about Medicare for all, you better figure out how to deal with the fraud in Medicare for some. Just my opinion. But before we talk about all of those numbers, and they're really important numbers, let's talk for just a minute about some good news out of Washington, D.C., there's good news. Yeah, we're gonna wa- we're gonna read impossible. I don't believe it. Yes, unless somehow the Democrats in the House can can muck it up, and I don't. Th- I think it's down the road far enough that they can't. We are going to reduce the actual size of the Washington bureaucracy. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, the Bureau of Land Management, you know that agency within the Department of the Interior that manages. 247 million acres of land in the United States. Just let that sink in for a second. 247 million acres. That's that, that, Is that a lot? Uh, that's an eighth of the land mass in the country. One eighth? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's pretty big, I guess. Yep. Yep. And it's... And what's going on with this land? How are we, we going to manage it now? Well, we're going to continue to manage it through the Bureau of Land Management, but they're going to move their headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction, Colorado, which is in the heart of the one-eighth of the country that the government owns. And some more of that management team will actually find itself moving to um, Bureau of Land Management field offices in Utah Arizona, Idaho, and New Mexico, where the government owns more of the land than private folk or Indian tribes. Just think about that for a moment. Now, of course, Washington insiders are screaming, you know, that it's because the current Secretary of the Interior um, is from Grand Junction that he is doing this. You know, uh, and Rachel Maddow on her show parroted that uh, um, along with a a big expose on something in Arizona that's not germane to this discussion. She parroted that line that, you know, the the current newly uh, uh, appointed secretary of the interior is from Grand Junction. Well, for once, Rachel, your research is incomplete and your analysis is completely swamped centered. Both Republican Senator Cory Gardner and Democratic Senator and presidential candidate Michael Bennett, who are Colorado's two senators, have been lobbying for this move for years, since the Obama administration. And there's good reason for that. You see, Washington, D.C. was the center of the nation when Abigail Adams first hung laundry to dry in the White House dining room. But Washington, D.C. has not been the geographic center of the United States since the Louisiana Purchase doubled the size of the nation in 1803. That's 216 years ago. So for 216 years, while this vast wilderness of the central and western United States, the plains and the mountains and, you know, those gorgeous rivers, um, although some of which we we now have in National parks, also part of the interior, but different from Bureau of Land Management. All of this land, which was settled by internal and external migration, by the way, 
all this time, Congress has maintained itself as the nation's largest landowner. And they delegated the oversight of that land that they owned, first to branches of the military and later to the executive branch of the government. It's all been managed for 216 years out of Washington, D.C. by horse-ridden uh, dispatch by telegraph, telephone, and now the Internet. But it's time for those bureaucrats to have to go live among the people governed and enjoy the same benefits and the same consequences of the regulations they promulgate. So living amongst the governed, unmasked, no longer anonymous seers from far away, well, I think that's going to improve the federal land management practices of the Bureau. But that's not, you know, I mean, it's not without some complication. You know, when you transfer 60 bureaucrats out of Washington, there are going to be complications. They have children in school. They have spouses with jobs. And you've got to be sensitive to the individual situations that you have to manage with some degree of sensitivity in much the same way that private corporations manage required relocations for business reasons. And many of you out there have experienced this. Moving the Bureau of Land Management out of Washington is one small step forward toward a smaller, more efficient, and more responsive 21st century government. But it's not the only move that's underway. Similarly, the Department of Agriculture has announced that it will move two of its research agencies from Washington, D.C. to metropolitan Kansas City in the coming fiscal year. And, and if you listen carefully, you can hear the screaming out of Washington as the elite say, who, me, go live in the Midwest among the rubes? Yes, yes, the, the union of American government workers is now trying to organize the scientists in protest of this move. So they're going to move two agencies, one called the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, and the second one is purely a numbers collector called the Economic Research Institute. And we'll be back in just a moment to explain to you why these people should be in Kansas City, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri. Take your pick. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back to talk a little more about the courage of the uh, Trump-appointed cabinet members to actually simplify government. Well, I have a question. Yeah. Okay. It seems to me that your argument is that Washington originally was established as the capital because it was geographically centralized. That plus it was close to George Washington's home and he liked that idea. 
So now, but he never governed from Washington. So now you're 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 you like this idea of moving everything geographically to the middle of the country. Are you suggesting we should re we should we should reestablish the capital and say Kansas City, and 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 how is that going to be any different? It just sounds like a centralized government, but physically centralized more now. I mean, how's that going to be any different if if the capital moves to, say, Kansas City or Omaha. I'm not proposing moving the capital. I'm saying within these huge, huge agencies, there are groups which make more sense not to be in Washington because they don't manage anything in Washington. They sit in Washington and manage grazing lands in Montana and send people to jail for setting a backfire when there's a forest fire. Now, if they were sitting in Grand Junction, Colorado in fire season or flood season in the Midwest, it would give them a different perspective. You know, the, when you live amongst you know, govern, those who are governed best, best, who govern least and govern most closely. And so while you need the cabinet level of the Department of Interior to be located in the most expensive, one of the most expensive um, cities in the country, do you need the people who actually have to make the decisions, who promulgate the regulations, sit in Washington as though and be exempt from the consequences of what they decide? I mean, and, and, and so... So despite the argument that was is being put forth by the American Federation of Government Workers on behalf of these USDA folks, um, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture is not, as Rachel Maddow pretended, the laboratory that took uh, uh, Fleming's mold, antibiotic mold, and turned it into penicillin. Yes, that was done within the FDA in the 1940s. You know, that's more than three, that's about three quarters of a century ago. They had this small lab. Feels like yesterday. I don't know about you, but I wasn't there. Um, And I'm so allergic to penicillin that, um, um, you know, that I can't eat mold cheese. So... Um, But in any case, this National Institute of Food and Agriculture that they propose moving the management of um, is, in fact, um, an institute created by legislation passed by Congress in 2008, not 75 years ago. And its mission is to strengthen agricultural research and to attract additionally highly competitive research scientists to the field of endeavor. So what they really do is not the direct, they don't do the research in this institute. They get requests for, you know, proposals for research projects from colleges and universities and uh, non-governmental, non-profits, et cetera, not National Science Foundation, et cetera. And they oversee and they make the grants because they think they're scientifically valu- valuable and they make and they oversee those grants. So the, this is not like they have uh, beacon, uh, base, beacon beaker, beakers of, of chemicals on top of a little Bunsen burner, okay? Um, 
And they also distribute funds to the states, which the states in turn give to uh, colleges and universities within those states. Uh, and so it, it really is a big accounting. It's a, it's a decision-making and accounting function. Um, and it's multidisciplinary. Uh, it, it gives grants in areas as crazy as biology and physics. And it encourages multidisciplinary research into things like climate change. So it's been, it's been suggested that these moves are somehow punitive because of President Trump's position on climate change. But you know that the National Oceanographic um, uh, and uh, Institute, NOAA, has published a 40-page guide to research in climate change. So the research is going on. Um, the policy that will come out of that research is what we need to be watching carefully. So that's what the Institute does. And the Economic Research Services mission is to provide economic research and information to inform the public and private decision-making on economic and policy issues that relate to agriculture, food, natural resources, and, and rural America. You know, that area where... Um, there is so much concern that the Electoral College will turn toward Trump, okay, because they're research subjects. So it's just an observation of mine, and, and this is less than 100 people in this laboratory. They're, they're economists, um, and, and they're, you know, pretty sophisticated economists, and many of them, um, well, you know, they have lives in Washington, D.C. Um, and so there is a concern about a brain drain. But, you know, if, if I were studying rural America, it's just an observation. But wouldn't it be easier to study rural America from rural America than via dispatch from an air-conditioned Washington, D.C. high-rise? Again, Living among the people that you are impacting makes rural Americans three-dimensional figures more than just research subjects. Both Kansas senators, as well as their neighbors in Missouri, you know, there really is the Missouri River in metropolitan Kansas City. The Missouri River really does flow through there, and there is a Kansas City, Missouri, and a Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, <clears throat> interesting. Once you leave there, it's totally flat between there and Wichita. Been there, done that. Um, so these economists might be um, truly surprised to find out that in Wichita, Kansas, they still have hitching posts in front of the courthouse. Yeah, really, been there, done that. Um, and, and heaven help you if you get to town at 9 o'clock, you better hope the hotel has a vending machine because you're having a candy bar for dinner. Um, it, it is quite rural by our, by, by our coastal, sophisticated standards. So both Kansas senators, as well as their neighbors in Missouri, have supported this move that's been studied now for over two years. Now, in all fairness, all four of those senators are Republicans. 
which means the Democrats must reflexively resist. But you know what? Kansas City is not exactly a backwater of economic study. It is the seat of one of the largest Federal Reserve banks. It is also already an important center of USDA, uh, Department of Agriculture activity, because it is the hub of American um, agricultural research with four land-grant colleges surrounding it. And you know what? It's also a significantly less expensive place to do business. So the USDA estimates it will save $300 million over the next decade plus, not including $26 million in economic inducements that Kansas City and the state of Kansas offered. So you know what that means? That means more money that goes into research. And after the the thousand-year spring floods we had in rural America, anyone who lives there, and these researchers who will soon live there, recognizes the need to study the changes in the climate, if only to better understand how to mitigate those economic impacts on American farm production. But the way USDA is going about this is really wrong. And we'll talk about the inefficiency of execution in just a moment. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And we're just a couple more thoughts on this USDA move. You know, it's the right thing to do if you're going to manage government efficiently, moving people to where the impact is and where if they actually are doing direct research, they can actually go do the direct research without, you know, having to farm it out, makes a lot of sense. But what does not make sense is when you bang people over the head instead of inducing them to make the move. Instead of showing them the positives of a less expensive lifestyle, more, you know, ag- more freedom, better colleges, close, you know, free college, co- public colleges, closer for your children, et cetera. Nope. They got with, and, and now remember, there is not yet a building site purchased or even a temporary headquarters finally selected in Kansas City. But the Research scientists involved got a take-it-or-leave-it letter in June. They had 30 days to decide, and that's when Rachel Maddow got involved because the union folks came to her um, and made it, you know, so she's made a big fuss about it. I would have done it differently. I would have said, okay, here's my budget. I want to get this done. I know the Democrats have have a... piece of legis- uh, a piece in the budget where they want to say, no, I'm not going to give you money for this, which will get overridden by in the Senate, blah, blah, blah. All right. 
I would go if I were the secret the the director in charge of these labor of these laboratories. I'd send out the RFQ to find a temporary headquarters. I would say we're going to start moving people, you know, by the end of this calendar year. Um, and and we're going to space those moves out, and we're going to stage it over time. So while the permanent location is built, and what that would allow is we could avoid a brain drain of, especially for, of economists, um, for a slightly lower saving over the next couple of years. And and I would leave in Washington D.C. some of the personnel who are within, you know, X number, five years, whatever, of retirement. I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be ham-handed because, because they're of all the benefits you're going to get from making this move. And those include more money that can be directed to primary research without a top-line increase to either the USDA or Bureau of Land Management budget, Proxi- and proximity, as I said, to some of the nation's leading universities. I mean, if you want to study agriculture, you go to Kansas, to Colorado, or to Davis here in California. If you want to study geology, rural land management, archaeology in terms of Indian artifacts, etc., you go to Colorado or New Mexico. So young scientists, the future of America, would find government service more attractive than if they were offered that same job in Washington, D.C., because it's a lower cost of living. They can have a family in Colorado or Kansas. It is closer to the actual work. If you're an archaeologist working in the Bureau of Land Management, you're right there. You can be at your sites. You're not getting secondhand information. And, and, and these two locations allow these young scientists, these new PhDs, a more varied lifestyle. And isn't bringing bright young minds into these agencies, the bright young minds with fresh perspectives, isn't that essential to finding a smarter 21st century government? And so... I'm hoping that nothing happens that changes these uh, uh, direction for either of these moves because it makes sense toward the the citizen-centric 21st century efficient government you and I both want. And speaking of closer to the people... The House of Representatives passed a 2019-2020 budget resolution this past Thursday and packed up and left town for six weeks for what they call scheduled district time. Some of you may be thinking what I'm thinking, long vacation and unnecessary junket time. Because... What does this bipartisan deal do? Two completely irresponsible things. It increases the spending limits for both domestic spending and defense spending by $320 
billion dollars. Billion with a B. Now that's a top line number. It's not like they've really said, I need to put $10 billion into housing to improve the situation in South Baltimore. Nope. This is top line money that we can kind of distribute around as fairy dust. So if you think that uh, if you think that the the idea of uh, you know special purpose um, bits of money for um, for individual little projects in the district um, has gone away, nah, just think there's some money there. And you know how did they get to this bipartisan agreement? Well, one thing we knew was based on the John McCain Defense Authorization Act um, that inc- government that military spending would increase by seventy billion dollars this year in the effort to modernize the the military, which is absolutely essential. So the Democrats said, "Well, if you're getting military money, we have to have just as much money to sprinkle around as fairy dust for domestic." programs, not yet specified domestic programs. So there are no specific, you know, authorization budget details underneath these big numbers. It's hoped that they can get those passed by the end of September when the fiscal year expires. But that's not promised. And we still think there's a possibility of a shutdown. Hope that's not true, but that's what the media is reporting. You know what the deal also does? It does not increase the national debt limit. That would be bad enough. Nope. Nope. What Congress did, what the House of Representatives did, and the Senate will agree to this week, is it entirely took the cap off the national debt. Not going to talk about it. Not going to think about it. Going to let it just accumulate till after the 2020 election and the inauguration of the next president, whether that's Trump second term or someone else. So Yang Gang. Um, I hope not, because Yang Gang would really take the cap, the top off this cap. You talk about that Fourth of July rocket, boom! So there's no limit on the debt, guys. Until July 31st, 2021. So from $22 trillion in debt in 2019, your guess is as good as mine as what it will be in 2021. Now I ask you, does that sound like a responsible way to govern? It doesn't to me. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about that and how it impacts the Democratic primary. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So now you see why I think saving half a trillion dollars is a big deal, right? Um, because this budget deal is not responsible 
It's not responsible at all. It's government's equivalent of you or I arguing, well, there's still checks in the checkbook, so that means I can continue to spend regardless of the bank balance. Well, if you and I do that, we're bankrupt. And frankly, if something is not done soon, so will the United States of America. I mean, this is something Barack Obama worried about way back when in 2010, put together what we call Simpson Bowls. Um, And the debt was half of what it is today. And you think I'm off on a tangent. Well, let me tell you that there are some people whose names you are familiar to you who are as worried about this or more alarmed as than I am. In 2010, a decade ago, um, General Mike Mullen, who was then the Joint Chief of Staff Chairman, said, I was shown the figures the other day by the controller of the Pentagon who said the interest on our debt is $571 billion two years from now. That, noticeably, is about the size. So the interest on the debt in 2012 was equal to the size of the defense budget. And Mike Mullen said, it's not sustainable. And his warnings went on in 2012 when he left his job as Joint Chief uh, uh, Chairman, um, he warned Congress, the single biggest threat to our national security is the debt. And General Dempsey, who succeeded him, said debt was a grave concern. And at that point, the debt was only $14 trillion. Dan Coates, the current director of National, national Intelligence, told his former colleagues in the Senate in, two th- in 2018, I'm concerned that our increasing fractious political process, particularly with respect to federal spending, is threatening our ability to properly defend the nation, both the short term and especially the long term. The failure to address our long term fiscal situation has increased the national debt to over $20 trillion and growing. This situation is unsustainable, and that's the end of his quote. This past Thursday evening, freshman congressman and Navy SEAL hero Dan Crenshaw of Texas explained his vote against the deal as, my generation will not be able to pay this debt. And Dan Crenshaw is correct. And notwithstanding the fact that the Senate is expected to follow the House's lead this week and the president has promised he will sign this, this budget deal is going to become law. And you know what? Um, These people are supposed to be in their districts for the next six weeks. So if there's a town hall near you, I'd go and ask a question about debt. This is your chance to ask for specific proposals from Congress or, or, you know, the big problems the nation faces. And so if there's a town hall, a question you might want to ask about debt, you might want to ask how Congress intends to fund fixing our crumbling infrastructure, election security, and the social safety net, 
while taking the cap off of our debt. Doesn't make sense, does it? So, if I were a CNN commentator at the Democratic presidential debate this coming Tuesday and Wednesday in, the, in Detroit, Michigan, I would ask all 20 Democrats, several of whom have voted for the Budget Control Act of 2019, I'd ask them exactly what they would do to address our unsustainable and out-of-control debt. Let me give you some hints about how they might answer. And by the way, all of these answers are the wrong answer. First, they're going to tell you they'd impeach President Trump because it's all his fault. Well, actually, he's done nothing to stop the escalation of debt, but he did inherit twice the debt that President Obama inherited from President Bush. Well, we're going to tax the assets of the one-tenth of one percent. Those total assets are estimated to be somewhere north of $10 trillion. So if you confiscated every penny they had, you wouldn't have enough to pay off half the debt. Well, then we'll cut the military. The military is $750 billion of $1.3 trillion in discretionary spending that's spending that Congress votes on, the rest of the $4.4 trillion budget is mandatory spending that Congress does not budget but previously legislated as ongoing. That includes the social safety net. 60% of that over that almost $3 trillion that's being, it is $3 trillion, Uh, In mandatory spending, 60% of it is Medicare and Social Security. So that's why I get crazy when you tell me there's $50 billion or $27 billion in fraud every single year since we started counting in about 2005. The next thing they're going to tell you is, you know, um, anyway, so... The $3 trillion, 60% of that is, is mandatory spending that the, every one of these Democratic candidates wants to, in, to increase. It also includes veterans' benefits, government retiree benefits, and the most dangerous part of mandatory spending is the continuously growing interest on the national debt. Okay? So, again... We've gone through, you know, tax the rich, cut the military, impeach the president. All of those are wrong answers. There's only one right answer, and it's something that um, I've written about in the past and I'm going to write about in the future again, and that is we need a combination of tax a little more, including payroll taxes for social spending, spend less, and encourage innovation and entrepreneurship to grow the economy. But I'm going to absolutely drop my wine glass if I hear that answer come off the stage in Detroit this week. There is one term, one term that if, if a person issues that term on that stage, that person ought to be the Democratic nominee. But again, I'm not waiting to hear it. And that is zero base budget. 
someday we got to stop and figure out as a people what our priorities are, how much money we we want to spend on those priorities, and for what reason. Where are we going as a nation? And then we need to figure out if that's the amount of money we need, that's the amount of money that we need, then let's figure out where the revenue is going to come from. And ladies and gentlemen, that means shared sacrifice. Because I'll tell you what, with all the rancor and all the outrage and all the craziness on both sides in this political season that never seems to stop, I'll tell you what, that debt is colorblind. That debt is immigration status blind. That debt is going to sink us if we don't, you know, the Chinese don't really have to have their 2040 plan if we don't put our house in order. We cannot be the preeminent leader of a rules-based international order if we are not fiscally secure at home. Now, if anybody on that stage tells you that on Wednesday night, I I hope you'll be um, on the Internet giving that person uh, a contribution. It doesn't have to be big, but guess what? You're not going to hear that. You're going to hear about Medicare for all, $30 trillion dollars. Tell me where that money is coming from. And we'll be back in just a moment with a couple of closing thoughts. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we've got just a few, just a couple minutes here. So let's talk about what I do expect to hear and see from Detroit. I expect to see a lack of reality, uh, a lack of responsibility um, in terms of how we govern and the honesty that is owed the American electorate. Um, There are some really deep divisions within the Democratic Party. Only Joe Biden and Mayor Pete of the top polling candidates have articulated any understanding of what the generalized middle American angst is about. And, And again, it's colorblind. People are insecure in terms of their jobs. Their incomes are stagnating. We've got a roaring consumption-based economy. 80% of our economy is consumption. But it's roaring at the expense of industrial jobs that are the basis of building an economy. There's angst about proposals that threaten energy sector jobs and family farms and small towns and small businesses. A reduced standard of living for three-fourths of Americans as housing and health care rise irrationally and unchecked, and a government increasingly unable to fulfill even the most basic needs of the people. They've got, they're spending all this money. They have this huge bureaucracy, but good God, can they fix a pothole? I, not, not, no, ev- no evidence in, that I've seen that they can do that. Even if there were any money left over to fill potholes, 
after all the pandering. So next week, Jim Rex um, from the Alliance Party will be here, um, and we're going to talk about a question that ranks right up there with the debt as, th- as a threat to our democracy. And that question is, why don't better prepared, high-quality, trustworthy people run for political office anymore? How does the field stack up against the leader that the United States of America's people need? And we're going to talk about how each of those Democratic candidates, et cetera, on that stage, you know, reflect the answers to those questions. You know, I know what interests me. That's what we just talked about. But what is more important is what interests you. So if you have questions or topics that you want to get asked or answered on the air, send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. Or find me um, on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or Reimagine Radio Hour. we're independent. We're nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent, results-oriented, post-political voice, please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org. And we'll see you next week. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.